This is Channel 253. In this episode of Gimme the Mic. I think engineering has had a historically elevated place um, at yeah. transportation specifically. Um, and a part of um, our goal for increasing diversity will help also in shaping that culture, which is more inclusive, which will then get us to having more meaningful engagement with, with our communities and actually being part of our communities. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Give me the mic. Give me the mic. Hello and welcome to Give Me the Mic, a podcast channel 253 here in South Puget Sound. This podcast features community voices and community topics. My name is Julie Masura and I will be hosting some episodes focusing on Washington or the state of the Puget Sound. I will have a series of invited guests join me to talk about their experiences studying the Puget Sound and how that work has led them to their current positions. All will be connected to our neighborhood the 253. Hey Tacoma, it's time to give me the mic. I came to Tacoma in 1975 when my father was stationed at McCord Air Force Base. I grew up in Tacoma. Um, I'm a proud Lincoln High School grad. I spent my undergraduate and graduate career at Washington State University where I studied geology. After a number of adjunct teaching jobs up and down the I-5 corridor, I returned to Tacoma to join the faculty at the University of Washington, Tacoma. I remember as a small child smelling that Tacoma aroma from that paper mill just down the road, eating the dirt in my yard and not being able to swim in the water in downtown Tacoma. I even recall getting swimmer's itch a few times at Wapato Lake. All these things I connected to the state of our environment after I taught a number of environmental science classes at the University of Washington, Tacoma. This is what brings me here today. I wanted to share my experiences studying the South Puget Sound with some really cool, badass women in science from our region. We will share our connection with one another, stories of, of research experiences and their journeys along the way. Again, welcome to Give Me the Mic. My, my next guest, this, this uh, podcast is Ashley Carl, and I'm really excited to have her here today. She is the Environmental Procedures Coordinator and NEPA Specialist from, Washington, from the Washington State Department of Transportation. Hi, Ashley. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Hey, to be here. Tell us a little bit uh, about yourself. Well, uh, I was born and raised in Washington, and currently I'm coming to you from the traditional lands of the Nisqually people on a gloriously green and gray day. I am the mom of two rambunctious, beautiful boys and the proud wife of my Alaskan man, Justin. Uh, my boys are two and six, so my time is pretty much consumed by taking care of and loving all my boys. 
and myself. I try to be good about that. Uh, and, and my job. I'm an environmental scientist with a background in water quality turned policy nerd who's uh, seeking harmony between all living creatures to preserve the world for my two young boys and my future great grandchildren, whom I'm already worried about and they're not even born yet. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Oh, that is just so wonderful. Um, can you, um, I'd like to start off the podcast with asking this question. Um, what is the nerdiest thing you did this past week? I'd have to go with the usual, playing with my son, Jonathan. He's uh, six and already a Lego master. This week, we built a robot from these tiny alphanumeric plastic pieces. He worked me hard to get that because we've tried them in the past and it ended in frustration, but this time he did it, uh, mostly by himself, my little engineer scientist. Uh, I was so proud of him because uh, some pieces weren't really securing properly, and so he got some sticky tack and solved the issue all on his own. It's really sweet. That is so funny. But, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Nope, nope. I will. I have a second one. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, uh, it was probably uh, having written to, uh, well, drafted an email to NPR to let them know that the way that they, and frankly, all news stations uh, give the weather forecast incorrectly. It's been a pet peeve of mine for a while. And the other day I heard Ed Ronco say, there's a 50-50 shot uh, of, you know, of it raining. I was like, I, just, I can't take it anymore. <clears throat> so I wrote up an email and I and as I was writing, I was thinking, well, there's probably a reason because it's not like they can say there's a 50% confidence that six one hundredths of an inch will fall between 11 and 5 p.m. So yeah. I removed it from my pet peeve list. I, it's okay. <laughs> they can report it 50-50 shot now. Sometimes it's the therapy of just writing it. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I remember teaching, you know, when I teach meteorology to students, um, I'm like 50% chance that 50% of this region is going to have this prediction right yeah yeah and that doesn't make a lot of sense to people so yeah that's great I love it <laughs> I actually heard Cliff Mass say that we should do the same confidence for uh, temperature because we know like when it's summer and they say 80 but it's really like 84 it's never accurate but we don't share those same percentages sorry that's yeah. nerdy <laughs> Cliff Mass is a, a really renowned a meteorologist in the region from the University of Washington, uh, University of Washington. So yeah, that's great. So Ashley, that's so great to hear that uh, about your nerdiest things. That's awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you a quick question um, and just back you up a little bit. Um, when was it that you decided that you wanted to become a scientist? Oh, that has to be in high school. Uh, in my AP biology class. It was somewhere between when we got to dissect a mink and sequence DNA. I was hooked. Just, just that, that structure and discipline and the miracle that are living beings is just endlessly fascinating to me. I, I actually almost got a tattoo of a cellular membrane when I graduated college. But as you saw, I got a tree that covers my entire back instead. Yeah, so Ashley has this beautiful, wise tree that covers her entire back. But it's it's an amazing tattoo. I can't imagine what that was like. Um, so DNA, so you were just basically sequencing the mink? 
No, those were two separate projects. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But somewhere between there, I was like, this is this is awesome. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'm so glad you found us. <laughs> <laughs> my plan was to go on and get my master's in nutrition uh, at the time because I find that uh, in, environmental impacts on the human health to be really fascinating. But the Great Recession hit and I needed a job. So I... <laughs> stop my school career. <laughs> yeah. But we still have that. You can always put that in your back pocket when those Definitely. guys, when those boys are in school. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when did you start working in the Salish Sea? When was your first kind of research experience? <clears throat> well, I guess technically I started, uh, when I was really young, first time I was uh, out of the boat with my mom and dad, um, and I was four, all lines were hooked and no one was at the helm. So I took control of the wheel and steered us to safety. That's my my parents' favorite story to tell. So needless to say, I fell in love with the water at an early age. Um, in college, though, um, my first year at UW Tacoma, I was looking at Alexandria cantonella, a phytoplankton that produces neurotoxins under the right conditions uh, that causes paralytic shellfish poisoning, which is harmful to humans. And I was lucky enough to get to work off boats for about five years altogether, towing phytoplankton nets, sending down the van bean hand dredges to get sediment samples, then back up to the lab to run chlorophylls and fix my phytoplankton for counting the microscope later. Yeah, I missed the lab. <laughs> Getting to go on the Canada trip to Clackwood Sound. That was the cold, wet, invigorating, great adventure that we got to go on. So Clackwood Sound is on the west coast of Vancouver Island. And so that's another uh, research area that um, some of our students have an opportunity to to study in. Did you ever get to see any whales up there, Ashley? I did not. Um, (laughs) That trip made me consider being like the next next Jacques Cousteau or Charles Darwin. But I wanted a family and I already had a great guy that I married right after graduation. So it all worked out. Wonderful. So um, how has this work kind of led you to the position that you're in today? Can you kind of take us on your journey? It's going to be a fun yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. Um, after I graduated, uh, I started at the Department of Ecology. Uh, and I got a mix of going out into the field and desk work. That's that's the good part about being an early career scientist. You still get to play outside. <laughs> um, I had so many great experiences while at ecology, working off the side of docks, looking out to the surrounding green islands of the Salish Sea was my office, like best view ever. Mm-hmm. Um, we had some pilings, you know, like literally logs sticking up out of the water out on the coast of Willapa Bay. Um, and we were to collect the water quality data out there. And we were working out there. Um, and there was a time that I actually got to yell for real man overboard. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we're replacing the I-beam on the piling, but that's what allows the CTD instrument to ride up and down in the water column. And uh, we'll call him Wade was mm-hmm. holding it and stretched too far off the bow of the boat and splash. And to my surprise, no one noticed at that split second. So I jumped all over getting the deal. Man overboard. Yeah, some of the training. So mm-hmm. where's Padilla Bay? Willapa Bay, out on the coast. Where's Willapa? Yeah. So can you kind of like, if you lived in Tacoma, how would I get to Willapa Bay? 
a drive out on uh, 101. And it's that uh, if you look at the map, there are two bays that cut into the side of the, the west coast of Washington. And the big one is Willapa Bay. And there's, it's famous for its oyster harvesting. And so, so we would. Hmm? You were studying the oyster um, beds there? No, for ecology, the, the great thing about ecology and um, getting to go around the state and collect the water quality samples was that's a lot of baseline information for scientists to then get take as their own and incorporate it into their research. So it's sort of that primary research data. Um, yeah, I got to fly in float planes and go across the state, just puddle jumping, collecting samples. It was great. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. From, from there, I went on to, to Washdot, where my focus was uh, on stormwater pollutants faded for the Salish Sea. So Washdot is the Washington State Department of Tar Transportation, yes? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so when I started there um, in stormwater research, I took my knowledge of water quality sampling and instrument programming, but I had a little, to learn some new skills. We're, we're talking skill saws, impact drills, soldering, and mixing cement to get our station set up. Mm. Not exactly the skills I was taught growing up. Um, and the chemistry is so complex because the pollutants that are out there are just numerous. Mm. But uh, after working in the field for two years, I became pregnant. And my hubby didn't like the idea of me working next to 70 mile per hour traffic with our baby in my belly along I-5. Oh, yeah. So I shifted to data QC for about a year. And mm -hmm. after that was promoted to field lead. Oh, so wow. I took on a lot of other duties during my time, um, which set me up to move into the position I am in now in our policy branch, supporting projects as the NEPA, which is National Environmental Policy Act and Environmental Justice Specialist. Um, and I, I like it because in my position, uh, I get to influence how we consider impacts to the natural and human environment. So with that deep understanding of how those two things are connected, I've kind of come full circle back to the people and how we're impacted, not just by the environment, but how we choose to mother nature. So right now my focus, uh, my work is focused on finding justice for traditionally underserved communities and influencing policy that can contribute to a more sustainable approach that works for everybody wanting to move throughout the state. Okay. So you started, you see, you, know, you got into, you know, hanging out on boats when you're a kid, which is just a wonderful like experience and it's very unique, right? And then um, through high school, you you got really kind of jazz and science and you're like, this is kind of what I want to do. And I do remember, yeah, talking to you um, about being a nutritionist and working in nutrition and trying to making that connection with the environment and stuff. And I think that's super exciting. Um, and then after after working at the University of Washington Tacoma as a student and graduating with an environmental science degree, then you have this cool and like wonderful and unique opportunity working with Washington State Department of Ecology. And you said that you were doing water quality and doing some baseline stuff. Can you share um, some of the regions that you were able to serve or actually do research and collect data within the um, Puget Sound? Oh, yeah, we had some stations um, off Willapa Bay, um, and then we had one over on Squaxin Island. Um, We're just to, yeah, yeah, give us an idea where those places are, yeah. That one is uh, South Sound over by Steamboat Island. Um, that was our South Sound representative sample. Um, that was where I saw my first nudibrinch, which are just beautiful, and I haven't seen one since. 
So What's a nudibranch? Brink? Can you share with us? <laughs> it's like I, I liken it to like a water butterfly. It just is, it looks like a lump of goo when you take it out of the water, but it has some amazing uh, flailability <laughs> to it. Uh, I don't have the scientific uh, description, but that's what they look like, and they just come in beautiful colors. Mm-hmm. Well, how big are they? Uh, probably about three or four inches long. Yeah, they're like a sea slug, right? I mean, sometimes I call yeah. them that. I wouldn't compare them to a land slug at all. Yeah. No, no, it's gelatinous sort of thing like that. <laughs> They're beautiful in the water for sure, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have one up at Mukilteo off the oh. old ferry island for our North Sound. Um, we had a couple there. We'd, we'd have one at the surface to get the surface conditions and then one at the near bottom um, oh. just to kind of see the gradation and the water column of dissolved oxygen and um, sort of the indicator of health of the sea. Yeah, so dissolved oxygen. So what were some of the things you were trying to look at? Um, Yeah, what was some of the parameters you were measuring with these kind of representative? I mean, you were all over the region, right? But these representative um, sites. Uh, Yeah, we took samples for dissolved oxygen, for chlorophyll, for temperature, pH, um, just a lot of the pressure, you know, to tell kind of how deep it was. We actually caught uh, the tsunami in, I think it was 2011, over Japan on it, where it had registered all the way into Puget Sound um, Mm -hmm. in our our pressure reading. Yeah. yeah, you know, I was part of the the water quality, the um, mooring. So we would just collect the data and sort of the other folks in my group um, focused on different areas, the sediment. Um, we had the beach program. They still have it in the beach program where they go out and sample for for red tide to see if it's safe to collect shellfish and yeah. update that information. So dissolved oxygen, looking at how much oxygen that organisms can kind of breathe. Chlorophyll is like related to the amount of green or, you know, phyto, maybe some uh, chlorophyll is associated with photosynthesis, right? So maybe connecting to the productivity in the water. And what was you Oh, the pH, right? So the pH is looking at, you know, we've all hear about this ocean acidification and that's a tricky one, right? To, to kind of gather. Um, but as a, a lab tech or as a field technician, able to kind of work as a team, do the collection, bring the samples back into the lab and then kind of assess or at least just gather that data to see if we can see any changes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. That, I think the value in that data is that long term where you can see the change over time and in those conditions. So. How can we, how can um, a community member find that information? Is it something that's readily accessible? Yeah, I believe that's still an ecology site. They post it and they have reports that they put together after, um, particularly the the plane uh, route. So monthly, they'll post yeah. that data. They call that uh, ISO. Way. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Google, if, if you guys, your listeners are wanted to get the information and kind of look at how things have changed over time when Ashley started all the way to they're still doing the work today is, is Google Eyes Over Puget Sound. And this is something that's publicly available. And it's a beautiful um, electronic document that you have access to. So yeah. They take pictures of the jellyfish and if they spot a whale or all sorts of pretty, pretty pictures. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, oil slicks and spills. But yeah. <laughs> So we're going to take a really quick break, but when we come back, I would love to talk to you about the work that you've been doing or that you did before uh, uh, you left the field. But I want to hear a little bit more about the work that you were doing at the Department of Transportation and looking at uh, uh, collecting water along um, 
very, very, very busy uh, locations <laughs> on the, uh, the interstate. So let's go ahead and take a break here uh, right now. Um, and we're going to hear from one of our sponsors. Hi, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma. And I've been a customer of TAPCO Credit Union since I was a kid, really. My parents set up a savings account for me and I've had that account with them ever since. In fact, my first credit card wasn't from a big banking conglomerate. It was from TAPCO and I still have that too. What I appreciate about TAPCO is that they are intensely local. Just like Channel 253, TAPCO keeps its focus on just Tacoma and Pierce County. They have easy to reach locations in the Tacoma area. And when I don't want to drive, I just use online banking. And they still help parents teach their kids good savings habits. The Moolah Kids Club teaches kids about savings, not only through interest on their money, but with special prizes like cupcakes and discounts at local attractions. So if you want to help your kids start a savings account the same way my parents did, check out our local credit union at tapcocu.org. My thanks to TAPCO for their support of this podcast and Channel 253. So welcome back to Give Me the Mic. Um, thank you so much to our sponsors for their continuous support for this po- uh, podcast. So Ashley, the last thing, we were talking about the work that you did with the Department of Ecology, which of course is closest to my heart because that's kind of the research that we did while you were an undergraduate at University of Washington, Tacoma, and, and super fun. And it's just exciting, as you said, as a career scientist, to be able to have an opportunity to go out and do field work and be out for long hours and get exhausted. Um, but then you had a career shift, which I was kind of excited to hear about when we um, caught up a couple of years ago. Um, you moved over to the Washington State Department of um, Transportation, where you were doing some field work. Can you share a little bit more detail about the field work that you were doing? for what, uh, Department of Transportation? Yeah, that work was probably the most challenging, even more so than working off a cold, wet ship, pulling up instruments from 150 meters down. Um, we had uh, several stations off the highways, uh, SR9, I-5 throughout the state that had a good slope off the side of them. And um, we collected the runoff into these like half pipes that ran along the grassy slopes. So we had a pavement edge one, and then we had one that was, uh, I think, three meters down and then six meters Mm -hmm. um, that we would sample from a basin, if you will, in the pipe that we would test for dissolved metals, uh, total suspended solids, diesel and gas, temperature, pH, et cetera, and then all sorts of fun other icky surfactants. Um, And we were testing the effectiveness of the grassy slope soil to treat or filter the the icky stuff out of the stormwater before it reached the streams, which then drain into the Salish Sea. Uh, So it turns out those grassy strips are pretty effective at treating stormwater, um, but they don't exist everywhere there is runoff. And uh, so there's definitely more to do uh, to study there. I think there's more work to understand the fate of those pollutants within our groundwater. Mm -hmm. Um, That whole water cycle, it's pretty complex. Um, but it is encouraging now that they've identified the previously unidentified compound from tires as the prime suspect to coho salmon mortality, as uh, so that we can just like when we found copper in our brakes to remove that and um, try to do better in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So you were talking, so you did some work off of um, State Route 9, I-5, 
and you're looking at areas where there was kind of like a slope that was going to be basically causing runoff, right? From mm-hmm. rain and pavement to go into, I, I would call it a ditch. Is that the right term? Well, we sort of built our own infrastructure to gather it so that it was like scientifically accurate. So right. we could measure the volume and then we could do a load rate and that kind of thing. I love that. I love nerding out with you. That's so great. So looking at the load, like how much was going in there, how fast it was actually, was it soaking into the ground or was mm-hmm. it just feeding right off into your catchment, whatever you guys were making? Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about the grassy strips. Where do you, where are you talking about? What, what is a grassy strip? I mean, how would you define that or kind of give me a picture of what you're talking about? Well, it's funny is the technical term is vegetated filter strips. So I'm glad I didn't use that, but <laughs> It's just the shoulder, you know, and you see grass on the side of off the shoulder, uh, that that's it. Um, so they were looking at, could we amend it with things like compost or um, that's really where I left them was with the compost to see if that could help pull out more metals. Um, and I think it was a mixed result where they were getting some um, additional pollutants from the, the compost. And so, but we were happy to hear that what we have out there this, the plain old grassy strip is is effective, pretty effective at filtering the pollutants. And that would make sense, right? You have a bigger surface area, you have plants in there to kind of trap things and slow mm-hmm. down the movement of the water. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. And I think the, the key to the, the necessary piece of that is um, through our, our permit with ecology um, mm-hmm. so that we can, it's, it's research to then inform how we design future stormwater facilities um, and then and also sort of claim that credit for treating stormwater. <laughs> yeah, right. And 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 obviously where we have these massive you know highways and these roadways that are um, basically infiltrating everywhere, right? Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just ensuring that we have we're always going to have an impact, right? We, we always as a as just being human, we're always going to have an impact in the environment. But how can we reduce that impact and leave the least amount of, you know, disturbance, right? And so it's yeah. so, it's so um, philosophical, you know? Um, so you were talking about these tire things. So do, can you tell me a little bit about um, that work? Because I think it started to emerge when you're kind of um, changing your job so that you could do some more of the um, policy work. Yeah. Yeah. Um you know, there were a couple of studies done um, that one um, through the research center, the, um, losing the name right now, but where they took some raw stormwater um, and and put some coho salmon in it, and uh, the salmon died because uh, the <laughs> that compound um, causes them to, if you see the videos, um, sort of just swim in circles and just disorients them. And then they end up flipping upside down and they die. Um, so now that they've found this compound and we can when take it out, then hopefully um, take it out of our system and hopefully we can have living coho. Yeah. And it seemed to, you kind of, uh, kind of said this really briefly, but we used to think it was the copper, right? And mm-hmm. the um, brakes, but then the copper is kind of reduced and like, no. And so there is this kind of revelation, oh, it's actually compounds are used in these tires. And think about, you know, you and I, I mean, I drive my car uh, to work. I don't drive it as much since, you know, we've been kind of home for a year and a half, but, um, but every time you basically choose to take your 
car out, a little piece of your tire starts to wear off a little bit more and a little bit more in the form of dust particulates. And then eventually that material can make its way in a solid form and an ashy form, and then it'll break down and, and have an impact on the environment. So, yeah. And then, and so what's happening now, as you probably have heard um, just on the, the news is that, you know, we're looking to see, is there a way in which we can reduce that impact? And it's going to take a huge change in the structure of tires and how we use um, those materials. Yeah. Uh, when, I, when I was driving up to all the stations, I was like, what if we just put a membrane over I-5 and we didn't have any runoff at all? Just, or, you know, just crazy, huge ideas that are not possible, yeah. but without, with the technology that we have today or, we're know. like, let's cover with plastic. Oh yeah, that's not good. <laughs> that's why I love the membrane. I'm obsessed with membranes and like their application and force yeah. fields and yeah. Yeah. And that's where I think you can get those boys of yours to, they're so creative. I think totally. they're going to figure it out for us and we'll be eating salmon, fresh salmon again. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. So, um, so then you, so you did a lot of field work and I know that you were always such a great field companion and stuff, but I'm sure you miss it. But so you switched over and I'm so super excited to hear more about your work with environmental justice. So how has the work that you're doing now um, as a policy, working on policy and NEPA, um, how has that kind of set you up for creating these community kind of um, partnerships? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really exciting times to be in right now um, where there's sort of, sort of a demand for that um, and our language is changing uh, just in the past year. I don't know that too many people use the word community. Um, so just to, to think in those terms is really revelational, I think, at this point in our history. Um, for, for working at a, a state DOT or just a state agencies, I sometimes feel like a small cog in this giant machine or system uh, that moves kind of slow. Uh, so I've found it to be uh, most helpful to just kind of keep the same script and, and say the same thing over and over to my colleagues. And when they're ready to hear it, they'll be there. And I think we're there. Um, I'm going to, to lead um, the development of an environmental justice assessment now coming out of the HEAL Act, which was just signed um, today, I think, okay. um, where it's a healthy environment for all. And um, out of that, a lot of the different agencies have a commitment um, to, for us specifically, update our community engagement plan and look at how we're engaging the communities with our projects. Um, and a big piece I really like that is part of that is to... Um, show the public what the what the government process looks like because uh, within NEPA and, and project environmental review uh, for the big ones there are requirements to have like public hearings and open houses and I always see the numbers of people attending those and just a, a mother of two young boys and where my priorities are I'm like ah, I don't know that we got a represent representative sample of everyone this could be impacting and um, so, so my uh, forge is to really actually get good, meaningful community engagement um, around the actions that the DOT is taking. Because transportation has this intersection of um, human health and economic vitality <laughs> and environmental impacts that are pretty astounding, um, where the transportation sector mm -hmm. contributes 40 
percent of greenhouse gases uh, within our system. And so looking to reduce that um, and, and looking to the biggest thing I'm excited about is reducing past harms. The, the history of the highway system is pretty interesting. Um, back in the 50s, it was formed for, um, oh, I always forget what what that's called, uh, <laughs> national security. Gosh, how could I forget that? <laughs> um, so they just kind of plowed the highways through wetlands and cheap land and a, a lot of minority neighborhoods. We have this picture that we pulled up of I-5 and it's just like this dirt path through a neighborhood. And now where kids were able to just go down the block to their school, they have this huge, you know, huge highway with death machines driving down um, that that they may or not may not be able to get past. So undoing a lot of those past harms that were maybe unintentional, but there was certainly some intention um, in in the policy that was set there. So um, yeah, I'm hoping to really dig in and and, um, help the DOT do better in the future. That's all we can hope for, right? (laughs) I think it's amazing that we kind of forget about the history. You know, how did we, I, I remember living in Tacoma when they put in uh, an attempt to put in a highway to the, uh, uh, what was it, to uh, Mount Rainier, you know, that highway 705 that got us mm-hmm. to kind of downtown and then they were supposed to, and then all of a sudden it ended when it made its way up to 38th Street. Like what happened there? You know, like there was all this, you know, intention of doing all this growth and how long that growth takes you know to to change the just the transportation to get people quicker through our area our region right and um going right through you know places where I live I grew up on the east side and seeing all of that grow into a big kind of a transportation hub right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and there are a lot of disparities um Mm -hmm connected to that with the people who live along the highways are, I think they say about 500 feet away, you're subjected to the particular matter that comes off the highway and um, can cause breathing issues. And um, those are typically uh, houses that don't cost as much because they're in that zone. Um, You have the highway noise, which is also pollution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And putting up the walls is that, you know, and that's really interesting too. Did those walls help, you know, those concrete walls, you know, they do with the noise. Yeah. But there's, um, a couple rules around when we can build walls and, um, can't just give a wall to everybody. They're very expensive. So, um, my, my dream is that part of that, um, correcting past wrongs is to start greening all of our corridors. So putting up more trees, more shade, and that also helps with noise reduction and cleaning our air and all that good stuff. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And it would be so much prettier. Yeah. And it's good stormwater retention. Trees are good all around. We know this. (laughs) I think that's something we learned in pollution and public policy. (laughs) What was it? The early 2000s, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Well, I am so thrilled to hear about the work that you're doing. Can we, um, so what are some of your ideas? Like, and I think, you know, if anything has come out from our situation lately, you know, what are, how can you reach that community that can't get to public hearings or don't have the time to read through a whole, um, you know, environmental impact report? How do you connect with those communities? There, I mean, there are basic barriers to consider, um, you know, 
go to where they are. So maybe a fair um, and have a booth there. Uh, make sure that there are language services. So folks who don't, that English isn't their first language, they can get an interpreter or translate the the documents. So there are basic things to reduce those barriers. But, um, you know, I, th I think what we're learning is that not learning. We know that there is systemic issues uh, right. and that takes kind of changing the whole system. And it's fascinating to see that not a lot of folks think in that system mind frame. And so it's even harder to kind of get, that's a barrier. Um, but I'd like to, to rework our process. I'm a process geek too. <laughs> <laughs> Go lean. Um, Cleaned up our lab really nicely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I've had silly ideas. They seem silly, but in three years, it'll probably be common practice where, uh, you know, we have all of this right of way. Let's put a sign where the project is going to happen. Like they're on, they're driving on the road. They're going to see the sign and then they know that something's happening and, and very, uh, I'm also getting into like marketing and campaigning. And so just that quick message to get their attention. Um, the, the, and the biggest thing though, is that we, putting people at the center of transportation will really change the way we think about transportation because right now it is so vehicle centric. Our culture has been built on the vehicle and our yeah. infrastructure has been built on that culture. And uh, people who are walking and rolling are not considered when we're talking about capacity or throughput. They're not part of that equation. And so that's changing too. Slowly there's a culture change and even policy change for that. Yeah. Um, but really it's like, who are we doing this for and what is their need? So really getting at those needs first is that process change. Because right now we say, do the solution for the vehicle. And let's say the community told us they need this right. and, and then they can help us shape what that looks like. And then we can engineer that solution. I think engineering has had a historically elevated place um, at yeah. transportation specifically. Um, and a part of um, our goal for increasing diversity will help also in shaping that culture, which is more inclusive, which will then get us to having more meaningful engagement with, with our communities and actually being part of our communities. Uh, one of my colleagues said the other day, with us teleworking, we could live anywhere in the state and then distribute ourselves throughout the state and, uh, and you know money and support these communities and actually become part of everywhere in the state and really understand what those needs are. But And, and finding those, those leaders that are already in those communities. And we're starting to do a lot of that. We have a new great environmental justice and community engagement manager, Alberto Valentin, and he's, he's taken the department in a really great direction. So very yeah. helpful. Because if you, if you bottle line it, right, Ashley, the thing is, is that you don't work for the roads, right? You don't work for um, the cars, you work for the people. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And I think we've lost that kind of sense of people and community. Um, one of the things I like to have um, folks address is like, how can the community can become involved in this and, and to support some of your visions or maybe, you know, the future of uh, the work that you're doing? Yeah, I'll, I'll take myself as an example, because just because I work for the government doesn't mean I really know what all the processes are. Sure. Um, so I live over in Lacey um, off of Carpenter and when we bought the house, I was worried about it. And now it's like materializing into panic. So um, on Carpenter, we have um, 
they have no bike lanes and no shoulders, but people walking there because there's the lake and there's the this great path that we're not connected to. Um, there's the, the grocery store, the 7-Eleven, but you are risking your life to get there um, and, and your children's lives to, to just walk and bike. And so um, I just emailed the um, the guy at Lacey Department of gosh, see public works is what they call it at the city level. Um, and said, you know, where is this project? Um, I I looked at their plans. So all the cities and counties have plans and even the, um, the regions have plans that should all talk to each other and they've rated projects. And so getting in early is really key because we're sort of getting out of this design display defend era. (laughs) And I think people are getting more used to having people involved earlier. Um, so yeah, f- figuring out that process, figuring out what's what's on the slate for for projects. Um, this is from a DOT perspective, I guess there's so many different other things, but um, yeah. finding a good contact and, and getting in early is key to helping make a difference in informed decisions. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's great advice. And just trying to figure out like who to contact. You know, one of the things I think too, though, when you're describing this and what you got to do, I mean, you, you're lucky, right? You understand that you can, like some people don't even know that they have that opportunity to, to mm-hmm. send an email, to make a phone call. Mm-hmm. And it's not that um, as an individual, as a citizen, like you work for me kind of thing, but you kind of do work for the community and the citizenship. Yeah. And really the fact sometimes there's only a couple of voices and those are the voices um, that might not be yours. And so become an active citizen participant. Yeah. Yeah. I hope to really instill that with my boys because it is sort of that invisible space. And the more, you know, the more, the more you can take action. Yeah. yeah. And giving them the, just the, the permission, the power, just, or yeah. even the, to be brave, right. Mm-hmm. To be brave and be able to become involved. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to, the last thing I love to ask my, my uh, guests is I, I like to talk about um, what's um, one or, yeah, what's one really cool, unique thing that you wanted to share with our listeners? Ooh. You know, <laughs> I think it's a combination of things that make us up, that makes us unique. Yeah. All of those intersections make us who we are and, and that's unique. I can't really claim any one thing as my own because we all share this place we call earth. Like we have similarities, we have differences. And so I guess all of my intersections make me a passionate person who has a a lot of ideas and wants to make this a better world for everyone to thrive. Because as I said, I do believe in harmony wherever, wherever it can be, you know, everything has its role in the natural world and those roles are understood and respected. Yeah. it's a steep hill to climb for sure, but I love it. Oh, it's so good to, to just, uh, to, to hear from you again and be able to kind of visit and, to to kind of catch up on the work that you're doing. And, and I'm, I'm super excited to think about ways in which we can continue to collaborate and to, to help support your mission and your vision and, and, you know, um, and, and as an alumni of the university, uh, love, you, you know, just the fact that you're willing to come back and talk about that and to motivate not only the students at the university, but also, you know, obviously your children and probably, you know, people around you. So thank you so much. So very, very much for taking this time 
um, to join us today. And it was really fun just hearing about your stories. Um, I, I love just your mission and your vision. It's really, it's grown so much um, over the years and, and, and to include the community and environmental justice is so important as we slow down um, and we start really looking up and, and looking at our impacts on the environment. So Ashley, thank you so much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Let's keep talking. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com membership and join. Thank you. Give Me the Mic is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.